Welcome to the Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota podcast. Safe Passage for Children's mission is to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. This series of episodes will take a closer look at our short weekly policy blog, or eBrief, to give you an inside look into Minnesota child welfare legislation, policies, and practices happening right now in Minnesota affecting abused and neglected children, as well as those who work with or care for them. It is our goal that this podcast is educational, informative, and bold, increasing collective knowledge on these issues, as well as raising our voice to speak up for the needs and the safety of vulnerable Minnesota children. If you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Stick around for this week's eBrief podcast episode featuring Safe Passage for Children's Executive Director, Rich German. This is the Safe Passage for Children podcast for October 1st, 2021. And I'm going to start with the blog that it's based on, which is entitled, Why Isn't Anti-Racism Training Working as Planned? We have heard concerns and frustration that anti-racism training hasn't reduced the disproportionate representation of black and indigenous families in child protection and foster care. So in training, the phrase, use it or lose it, means teachings have to be applied immediately to convert them into actual skills. It starts in the classroom with role plays of courtroom presentations and parent interviews and other kind of hands-on scenarios, both of which, by the way, or all of which are included in Minnesota's Child Welfare Training Academy curriculum, so that's great. Now, once back at work, supervisors need to help workers relate what they learn to real situations within a day or two. Then units, units must routinely review decisions in light of the training. And finally, quality reviews are needed to spot patterns of bias. So training will actually turn into practice when these components are implemented. So if a county's anti-racism training isn't meeting expectations, we suggest they check first to see if these elements of an effective training program are being employed. So that's the blog. So here's our comments on it. First, the term use it or lose it applies to many different situations, including intimate relationships, but we're not going to go there. We're going to go to human services literature, where this principle applies to research showing that training has to be used within 72 hours or it will be forgotten. It'll be lost. So let's illustrate this with a simple example. Let's say a supervisor of a unit just come back from training on how to evaluate employees and help them develop their career goals. The next day is unusually busy for her because she's just been away at training for two days and her work has backed up. So the second day after the training, she somehow carves out 15 minutes to diligently follow up. And she says to herself, let's see, when it's said to give feedback in an ongoing way. Uh, Did they say you should have supervisory sessions every two weeks or was it once a month? And there's supposed to be a career development plan. And I remember two components of it, but I think there were five. So let's see, what were the others? I don't remember. And they also suggested that when you choose a form to use, you should make sure it includes five areas. And I remember three of them, but uh, what were the other two? 
So, as you can see, the trainee has to have time to pull out the materials and remember what they learned, and that's going to take, by itself, more than 15 minutes. And then, by the way, it helps if the trainee includes some hands-on work that we talked about, such as different scenarios to problem-solve and role-playing. But it's also essential to apply whatever was learned to your own work that you deal with every day, because that's the real stuff. So at this point, the trainee probably needs their manager to show up and help them sort things out. So that means a manager needs to be aware of when a person comes back from training and be committed to checking in with them to make sure they're practicing and generally to do whatever coaching is called for. And then finally, the supervisor has to pull out the records of everyone they supervise, develop a draft set of career goals and feedback, and schedule the meetings. At this step, uh, step they'll be asking additional questions like, hmm, let's see, what were some of the phrases they used when you need to convey criticism? I guess I'd better look at that again. Next, the supervisor needs to launch the employee's skill development sessions with a series of meetings, and actually doing the meetings will be a new experience, which will raise a lot of additional questions and send them back to the training materials and to their manager for some coaching. And finally, the manager needs to have a system, the manager, that is, needs to have a system to track what the supervisors are doing. Are they, in fact, regularly having these coaching sessions with their staff? And the manager needs to have a way to measure how well they are coaching their staff. Are the people working for this particular supervisor advancing in their careers as well as in other units? Uh, do they feel they're getting good support from their supervisor? Maybe we should implement a 360-degree evaluation process, which is one where the supervisor or manager is also evaluated by the people who work for them. So to do all this well, there needs to be an organization-wide way to gather this information and feed it back to the managers. And then individual managers need to do their own career development work with their own supervisors, uh, which also becomes an important way to model the behavior that they're trying to develop. So while this topic so far is not directly related to anti-racism training, it's true that training on how to develop people's careers is really one important way to make sure that women and BIPOC employees get an equal shot at advancing into supervisory management and top-level staff positions. So it's a really critical diversity tool in the HR toolkit. So how often have you seen a fully developed employee skill and career development process in your job? In my jobs, it hasn't happened very often. I want to point out something you might want to look up online because a ray of light comes from the Zero Abuse Project at Mitchell Hamlin Law School. There, Victor Veith and his colleagues are working to make robust training sessions the norm in child welfare. The Zero Abuse Project trains over 30,000 child protection workers and other first responders every year using a curriculum they call CAST. That's all in caps. You can look it up. And this includes using hands-on training scenarios, which for some of their clients include mock courtrooms and using actors to role-play interviews with parents on a set that's designed to look like a home setting. Great stuff. So while this type of fully rounded training program in government may be rare, I personally have seen it work firsthand. When I was the finance director for the city of St. Paul, our fair city, where I live, we developed a train-the-trainer program in Continuous Quality Improvement, or CQI. So the first step was to assemble a team to review the six or eight proposals that came in 
in response to the RFP. And the team was comprised half of union leaders and half of middle or upper middle level managers. Our process included a principle of CQI that everybody in a work group participates equally. So in reviewing and rating the proposals, everyone chipped in. The conversation got rolling. There was no deferring to managers or to the leaders of the larger unions. The conversation was going great. And at one point, the president of the police union, who's obviously an important person in this kind of process, had been kind of sitting on the sidelines. And then he suddenly perked up and he leaned in and he said, oh, this is a real process. That was a turning point. We went on to have full buy-in from the unions and managers, both We had 15 training teams that spread out throughout the city. Uh, Each was composed of a union president and a manager, and they trained over 2,000 employees who developed 30 continuous quality improvement projects themselves. These were not top-down projects. These These were developed by the units and the employees in them. And I just think of one of them finally in particular because it was in one of my own divisions, the licensing and permits group. They transformed their operation from one of near utter frustration for citizens and developers alike into a single floor unit that combined about 15 units overall that had a sign over it saying customer service. Imagine that. And 80% of ordinary permit requests were handled within 20 minutes. Usually before that took a good day for a citizen to come down and pull all the permits for like putting on a new front porch or whatever. And then the more complex cases, you know, involving developers got a case manager who walked them through the process and made sure they knew all of the pieces that they needed to have in place. So naturally, as a result of this, customer satisfaction went way up. So bringing all this back to training in human services, the leaders of an organization and its employees just have to be all in on changing the way that they do business. And how would this work in anti-racism training? Well, among other components, it would require regular ongoing case reviews to compare cases involving white, black, indigenous, and other BIPOC families to see if they are being treated the same way. That's a real learning experience in a unit when people get an aha moment and say, wow, these two cases are pretty similar. We screened in one, we screened out the other. What's up with that? Or we removed these children from home and we didn't remove those children. And, you know, now that we look at it again, those families are not very different. So those are the kind of things that happen when a unit gets together and really starts to look at what they're doing in light of this kind of training. So the next step will be uh, to require that, a, a, you know, you develop a robust quality review instrument and a protocol to go along with it. And you need input from the key sto- stakeholders in doing this because ultimately you have to have buy-in from people who have developed confidence that the process and the review instrument is asking the right questions. And then finally, the results have to be transparent. In other words, they have to be shared with the public and with workers, not just with the managers. The only really great example of a process like this that I'm aware of is in Utah. And in 2005, that state started a program in in child protection and foster care to measure 23 steps in the, you know, in the continuum of processes, including, for example, uh, whether workers visited the child and the parents in open child protection cases and in foster care at least once a month. Did they interview children separately from the adults, both in child protection and foster care? 
Uh, and if there was a reunification plan where the children were placed, you know, were the children placed less than 25 miles from the biological home? Because it turned out that that was kind of a threshold. Uh, and if they were placed further away, the, the reunification plans didn't happen. Uh, and also were workers getting families to court on schedule and, and similar metrics like that. And a key part of this process was that every worker got their own stoplight report. Uh, meaning a report where red is a problem, yellow is needs improvement, and green is, hey, you're doing great. So it helped that they had the resources, that the workers had the resources to take the time to work on these areas. Utah was at that time subject to a federal class action lawsuit, and part of the settlement was to add a few hundred caseworkers, and that's what made this really possible. Then once workers started getting these monthly reports, they knew where to focus their energies. Within two years, those reports turned, uh, as one manager put it, from a sea of red to a sea of green. And in terms of the numbers, the metrics improved from 62% or maybe 65% on average uh, uh, you know, of meeting these metrics to meeting the expectations over 90% of the time consistently in all of the divisions and all of the uh, parts of the state. One really important component of this Utah program was there were also quality reviews of cases, and they weren't just done by an outside audit team. Every manager, every supervisor, every line worker had to do a quality review, either of an employee or a peer, and they had to do it at least once a quarter. The result was that everyone internalized the standards. No, it's more like they metabolized them until without even thinking, workers were applying them as they went along in their day-to-day -day work. So think about how that would be important in anti-racism training if everybody had just completely internalized the steps that they need to do, the things they need to think about. It would have a profound effect on whatever is within the control of child welfare. So the point of all this is that simply doing anti-racism training is pretty much doomed to fail. The leadership in the counties and the state of Minnesota need to commit the resources to develop a robust training program with all these components that I'm talking about if you are really going to get results that we are seeking. Well, with that, I want to thank you, Rich, for sharing your time and your expertise on these issues. Again, if you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Until next time, this is Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, working to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. If you would like to learn more about Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, please visit us on our website, at safepassageforchildren.org. There you can sign up for our email list, read all of our eBrief blog posts, register for our free bi-monthly webinars, watch our featured videos, and more. You can also follow Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn.